Hello and welcome to Switzer TV Property. I'm Peter Switzer. This goes out on Thursday night, so you just go to the YouTube channel, Switzer Financial Group. Okay, on tonight's program, we've got Margaret Lomas. Now, Margaret, I've often called her the princess of property. And I've asked her about the common mistakes that investors make, but she also gives us the top five suburbs that she's encouraging her clients to look at right around the country. Then we'll be talking to Greville Paps. Then Greville is well known from the block. He's bought lots of the uh, properties on the block. He's an expert, he's a valuer, he's a buyer's agent. I've asked him what he thinks about the uh, price property rebound, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne. Does he believe the numbers that are coming out from CoreLogic? And finally, Anthony Doyle from Fidelity poses the question, are interest rate cuts actually working nowadays? And if not, why not? That's the program. So without any further ado, let's catch up with Margaret Lomas from Destiny Financial. Margaret Lomas, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Look, a lot of people are making a lot of the fact that house prices are starting to rise and there are a group of people out there who, who live in eternal fear that people will make huge mistakes becoming property investors. That's why I want to talk to you because your job is to help people invest well as property investors. Is this a good time for property investors, Margaret? Well, look, I know you've known me long enough to know that I'm going to answer that with one word, which is always. It's always a good time to buy property, but let me qualify that a little bit because I think people are under the misapprehension that as long as you buy property and hold it long enough, it will always do well. And that's not what I'm saying. What I'm really saying is that there's always somewhere in Australia that makes good buying. Just like if you're buying shares, there's always a share that represents good value even when the share market is crashing. Yeah. Um, so regardless of what your local property markets are doing, regardless of whether Sydney is really making a comeback or not, regardless of whether Melbourne is going to surge ahead, there's always some place in Australia that is at the beginning of its ramp up and it's time to buy there. Hmm. Okay. I'm going to ask you about the common mistakes that you know novice property investors make and, and even when they're not novice, they keep making the same mistakes over and over again. Yes. What are they, Margaret? Yeah, I was going to say it's not just novice property no. investors. I see people always making mistakes. And if someone buys a property that does okay for them, they think they're an expert and think that they're always going to, to make the right decisions, then it doesn't work that way. I think that the biggest mistake that people make is putting too much credence in getting other people to make the decisions for them and listening to the spruikers. I mean, you know, if I could bottle the way those spruikers managed to be able to sell poorly performing property in areas that you would never buy in to investors and have that investment that they're buying the best things in sliced bread, you'd have a pretty good um, sales course on your hands, wouldn't you? Because they're, they're so very good at it. But I think what property investors need to do is always ask themselves the question, what is that person getting out of this? Why are those why are they so keen to sell it to me? Um, and if they're getting advice from a spruker and it's free advice, then you can be sure that that spruker is making money somewhere along the way and it's probably in an inflated price that you end up paying if 
find yourself down the track with a property not worth what you paid for it, and you just can't get ahead that way if you do that too often. I guess that's the first mistake. Um, another mistake that I see a lot of investors make is thinking that they can buy a single property and that that's enough for them to build a great financial future on. Um, and then a lot of those people buy that one when it doesn't perform as well as it could or if it performs really well, will then sell it to buy a boat or go on holiday and, and basically turn what is a depreciating asset into a depreciating one by you know getting rid of it before it had the, the chance to perform and actually provide that good retirement income for them. There's a whole lot of other things as well, Pete, like you know, people thinking that they need to buy next door to where they live because they can keep an eye on it, when where they live might not be the next hotspot. Um, trying to repeat a good buy. So people uh, buy a property, they get it right, they buy in a great area, and then they want to do it again. But by then, they have realised that that area is probably past its best performance and it's not going to deliver the same all over again. But I suppose the mistake that bothers me the most is the fact that property investors go into probably the biggest investment of their life, certainly one of the most costly, without even knowing what they're doing. So they fail to become educated and in doing so, hand over responsibility to people who they don't really know what's going on. Yeah, so I guess what you're saying also is, Margaret, that we're often very emotionally attached to, to property. And so therefore, I, I guess in a perfect world, you'd like to take the emotion out of it and get people to be really objective about the potential of the asset to re, to give recurring income and capital gain over time. That's what I've been trying to do for years, Pete. I mean, it's easy for you, I think, because people don't get emotional about a coal share or a you know a, a mining stock. They're just pieces of paper, and that's the good thing about them. You can buy them, you can sell them quickly, you can realise your gain very, very quickly. But because we're born in property, we're raised in it, and everybody fancies themselves as a property expert of some kind. Yeah. Um, you know, we've all seen a property that's done well, or maybe been involved with one ourselves. Then everybody thinks they're an automatic expert on the topic, and they're not. They do become emotionally involved. They think about what suits them. They they hear about their mates doing well and want to copy that. We do become very emotional. People argue about property all the time. It's always the topic of conversation at dinner parties. People love it, but the problem is that they do become emotionally involved. And for a long time now, I've tried to get people to see that just like that piece of paper that is your coal share, there are economic fundamentals about an area and then a property that you need to explore and research before you go and buy anywhere. Margaret, when you uh, have people who come to you in, in your business um, and they've got these preconceived uh, mistakes uh, or mistaken views, how do you change them? How do you get them to see what you would say is a more logical approach to investing in property? Well, you'd think it would be easy, wouldn't you? But it isn't that easy. <laughs> Even when people become a client of Destiny and know that we have 
particular philosophies that we're trying to teach them, they still make the mistakes over and over again because along the way there's that balance between the emotion and what they know they should do. And that emotion does tend to take hold of them just before they're about to buy. And it either prevents them from buying what could be a great investment because they take a look at it and think, well, I'd never live in that myself, or it makes them buy something that they really fancy and it's not the right kind of property, it's not in the right area, the fundamentals just don't exist. One of the ways that I try to do it is to really do that education first. Everyone who comes to Destiny sits through an online education course that I developed over many years and it's a really comprehensive course. It's got like 68 modules in it. So it's a very comprehensive course. And I think what it does is it allows people to really stand back and realise that there's a lot to this property investing and most of it they don't know. Mm. Uh, so it's really helping people to step away from that emotion and look at the facts and figures about how to invest in property that helps them to suddenly become better property investors. Yeah. If you had to pick out one fatal mistake that a lot of people you've dealt with tended to make, what would that one be? Yeah, it's always the buying in their own suburb, always, mm. every time. Um, and that's because this is how it works. For a lot of people, when they buy in a particular suburb, it could be a suburb that was previously not necessarily as desirable. It might have been up and coming. They may have bought what they could afford at the time and it could have been thought to be, you know, out in the sticks. Then over time, the urban sprawl begins, their area popular, desirable, their property values go up and up and up. Everybody likes the area, talks about it. There's a sense of community in the area. Everybody knows everybody else. And you start to think your area is pretty darn good and therefore it must make a great investment. And it was a great investment for you when you bought it. But the problem is that that was years ago. It's now gone up in value. It's no longer affordable. It doesn't present a very good cash flow argument because the price you pay to get into that area compared to the rental yield that you get isn't a very good transaction. Generally, by the time an area becomes one of those desirable areas, the yields sit around about two, two and a half percent. And at the moment, that doesn't sound so bad with interest rates of three and a half percent, they go to six or seven. It's a pretty bad yield story, really. Um, and it's a going to become property that you've got to pour money in for the rest of your life, hoping that it goes through another period of fabulous gain and may not. So that's the mistake I think people make, not realising that what they should be doing is finding another area looks like their area before it became that big, desirable suburb. Okay. So let's go around the country. I always like to get you to do this. Five areas that you think really look like good value at the moment. Now, Pete... Your viewers are getting this before anyone because I normally don't release any of these until the very beginning of a year. Mm. Um, but since you asked me, I went to the books and I went to the computer and I started to think about what I thought might make good investments for people. Now, just to qualify this, Pete, you know that one of the things that I don't do is I don't try to uh, second-guess the next boom market. Mm. When I recommend areas 
for people to invest in, I like to think about the long-term possibilities of that investment. Will it deliver over a 10 to 15-year period? Will it have good yields so that you don't go broke waiting for that elusive capital gain to come along? Yeah. Um, and does it have the fundamentals that families for? Because families really anchor to an area and make it grow really well into the future. So that's the kind of area that I look at. But I'm going to start there on the sunshine coast. And for those people who have a fairly long time um, to invest, so if you're in your late 50s or even early 50s, I probably wouldn't be investing in this area. But if I was in my 30s, I think Maruchi would going to be one of those areas that really does well over long term for people. Um, there's a new uh, town centre being built. Marichal's not really got one. So they're building a town there. It's got a lot of lifestyle things going for it, but it's also not that far now from the suburbs of Brisbane as we see that urban school and pretty soon it's all going to connect up. We've already got great transport modes going there. Long term plans, the rail line is so I think that's a good one. Um, for those people who do like a little bit of regional investing, you know there's a bit of a powerhouse or interesting powerhouse going on out there in Orange. Uh, we don't have a lot of land releasing up there. They've had a water problem for quite a long time, but they've got that sorted because everyone in town just knows how to save water. Um, so they actually use around about half the national average water in each house within Orange, so they're used to that now. But there's certainly a lot happening and other good economic around health precincts and, and areas like that. So I like oranges. Go south of Sydney, I know about the fact that the boom has come back to Sydney. I'm still a sceptic in that. We aren't yet back to our 2016 highs yet, and we might get back to it, but I don't know if we're too far past it. But I do think that the uh, area just out of Sydney benefits from that. Areas such as Shoalhaven. Um, very affordable to be there. The commute too bad. It's still probably a two-hour commute, but it's starting to get into being closer to Sydney. And I think, and, and the, the yields are good. I think we're going to find some good capital gain in Haven. Down to Melbourne, what we're seeing happening in Melbourne is we're seeing the population spread out to the east, so beyond Narrow Warren, um, and a little bit further on there. We're starting to see a lot of land now being caught up, seeing a lot of families and communities coming up. And I think Warrigal, which has come right out of uh, the problems it had with the coal mining, we're going to start to see those areas really be picked up by both investors and owner occupiers. And there's nice cheap buying there, really good 6% yield. Uh, still easy commute to Melbourne and a train line as well. Mm. So I like that. Finally, can't pick up without having a South Australian kick. You know my love affair with Adelaide. Only it's always been good to me. I think it's relatively good to anybody who lies there. I'm picking Hallett Cove. It's tucked away there, uh, just south of Cornell. Beautiful beach, highly affordable. Five percent yields. A great community feel. Only 20 back to the city along that newly dissipated freeway. What's not to like about that? Yeah, well, I think the uh, Premier of South Australia will love you, the fact that you always give it a pretty fair go. Margaret, as always, thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me.
Well, there's a bit of controversy about the house price rebound in Sydney and Melbourne as per the data from CoreLogic. Uh, so we want to talk to people at the coalface who, who know the various real estate markets around the country pretty well. And one guy who fits that bill perfectly is Greville Pabst from Greville Pabst Property Advisory. Thanks for joining us, Joe Greville. Thanks, Peter. Okay, just before we start, let's just position you because you're not just a property expert, you're also a celebrity working on the program The Block. <laughs> just, just, tell us, just tell us what your role is on The Block. Sure, I don't know about a celebrity, but I have been uh, involved with The Block now for the last eight seasons. And uh, as, a, as an advisor to the contestants and, uh, and certainly as someone on auction day who... Uh, you know, uh, tries to bid uh, on behalf of my clients. And mm. I suppose in the last couple of years, I've been reasonably successful. Um, um, this year, I bought one property for a client. And, um, you know, the year before, I bought uh, four out of the five in St Kilda. So, uh, yeah, that was uh, that was pretty good. Okay. And you're, you are a buyer's agent, amongst other things, aren't you? Yeah, look, I, um, I wear another hat. I'm a valuer. So I've been a valuer okay. for... 30 years and then my uh, my other company WBP group is you know I think the fourth or fifth largest supplier of valuations in the country so we do we do about 800 property valuations every single day uh, so that that hmm. data that we collect in the analytics is really useful for me um, when I'm in my other role as a, as a, a property advisor and um, you know and advising my clients on where to buy what to buy hmm. And how and and to take care of that process. Okay, and um, I've got to say, a colleague of mine in the past, Dave Hughes, you once bought a property for him. Uh, I thought that's a very risky strategy because if he didn't like the property, he'd slag you in a gentle, co co comedic kind of way. Is, is he still living in the Elstonwick property? You know, I did buy for for Dave Hughes in the Elstonwick series of the block, and. Uh, you know, like I think I've been the butt of his uh, his jokes and his uh, and his comedy routines for the last twelve months. He's certainly he's he's dined out on me. Uh, that that's for sure. And uh, he always says, yeah. you know, I paid too much, but quietly he is, uh, I think, very happy. And uh, no, he doesn't live there. Uh, we've actually yeah. rented that property out for I think it was a, about twenty four hundred dollars a week. So um, yeah. he's doing very okay. nicely out of it. Yeah, I know. He's he has a capacity to whinge whether he wins or loses, uh, Husey, but uh, well done. Let's, let's get down to the hard business now. Um, the Melbourne uh, house price rebound, you live in Melbourne, so I'll, I'll ask about that first. Um, are you convinced that it's rebounding? Oh, look, with, without doubt. And, and, it, and this year has been a, a phenomenal year. It's a year in two halves. It's a, it's a classic V-shaped recovery. You know, we... Now, before the election, we had the you know, the credit squeeze, we had the Royal Commission into banking, and uh, you know I, I I saw in my valuation business our our volumes because we rely on lending for valuations that just collapsed and our volumes were down fifteen to twenty percent and uh, and of course house prices in Melbourne peaked to trough, fell fell by fifteen percent. Now mm. you know, come the, the the change of government, um, well not the change of government but the, the you know the uh, the win by the liberals. Um, yeah. That that was the turning point, and uh, there was all this uncertainty about negative gearing and capital gains tax had dissipated, 
and it's a classic V shape. It is. It it has recovered very very quickly, and uh, mm. uh, yeah, I can I can see. We are all in some suburbs and areas of Melbourne. We've already recovered that fifteen percent. Mm. What do you think is going to happen going forward? Because look, I think most of us would prefer just to be a, a steady and solid market rather than a a slam bam thank you ma'am boom. What do you think is going to happen? Well, look, since since July, the, the first quarter, you know, we're, we're up a bit over six percent. October, mm. we're up over two percent, and November figures just came out in Melbourne, two point two percent, and in Sydney, two point seven percent. So we're we are, this is really strong growth, and in Sydney, that's that's the biggest monthly growth since nineteen eighty eight. So, yeah. um, what's going to happen? Uh, there's certainly a lot of strength in this market, but the strength is predominantly. You know, under three million dollars. Once once we get above three million dollars, properties are sitting there longer, and I think it's because it's still it's still difficult to, and problematic to get finance at that top end of the market. But under two million dollars, uh, it is it is flying, um, and what it is, it, it's a supply problem more than anything else. We simply have a shortage of family friendly housing. We're not building enough. Uh, population growth is strong, interest rates are low, uh, and it's a supply-driven problem. And, and you can't fix that quickly. So um, this is going to continue. We have a depth of buyers. And when we have clearance rates, particularly in Melbourne and Sydney, hovering around the 75% mark, what that indicates is that you have a depth of bidders at auction at four to five people, typically at an auction. You know, only one person can buy that property so that means the four that miss out then carry carry forward to the next auction. So it, it, it really is uh, that demand is strong and that's then translating into capital growth. And I know from experience, Peter, that when I'm seeing clearance rates above 75%, that translates to 10 to 15% capital growth. So I can see next year carrying for, if all things stay the same, I can see another 10 to 15 percent growth if those clearance rates are maintained. Yeah. So, can you take us around the country? Does your your valuations take you into you know two markets that have kind of struggled, namely Perth, particularly struggled, and Brisbane sort of been not doing much. Are you seeing any um, improvement in those markets? Yeah. Well, look, Sydney, Sydney and Melbourne fell the most. Yeah. And they have both been the quickest markets to recover. Um, Brisbane is the third market in Australia that is performing quite well. We've noticed Brisbane is, is really growing um, uh, well as well. Look, the other markets are, you know, are still relatively subdued. There is some sort of extra things going on in Perth, but it is still, you know, it's still sort of dragging along the bottom a bit. Yeah. Are you finding many property investors are looking at commercial properties? And if so, how are commercial properties doing? Well, of course, all of these um, property types work in different cycles. So um, the commercial market has been going very well, but it's been driven by, you know, we simply don't have enough commercially zoned land. And what's happened over the last few years Developers have looked at commercially zoned land and said, well, you know what, residential performance is so strong and yielding such better results. Um, they're building mixed, the developers have built 
mixed-use residential and com commercial developments on that commercially zoned land uh, because it's high yielding. Now, when you do that, you can't reverse it. So mm. once that commercially zoned land is constructed for residential, that's gone. And, mm. and, and so th there has been a shortage, particularly in Melbourne and Sydney, um, in, in, in some of those district centres around railway stations in, in, in those sort of, uh, you know, within 10 to 15 kilometres of the CBD. So commercial has been performing well and, and we still have a, a shortage. And I think what is an interesting thing that I've noticed um, of late, well, over the last 12 months anyways, is, is that the retail market, which has been very subdued, uh, really struggling because of, um, you know, we're now buying things on the internet and so forth and there's lots of, you know, fashion and retail is really struggling. But what I'm noticing is that office uses, because of the shortage in the traditional commercial markets, are actually going in and, and accommodating these retail uses. So accountants, solicitors, um, service industries mm. are going into these retail uses and, and starting to absorb that retail stock. Which is um, which is an interesting um, trend in in our market right now. Mm. Um, so and if we look at industrial, you know, mm. industrial has probably been the best performing market. Um, I, I can't really speak for, for for Sydney, but particularly mm. in Melbourne, we have had last six years incredibly strong growth in industrial land values from $250 a square metre in southeast Melbourne to now $550 to $600 per square metre. So we've had incredible growth on the back of logistic industries um you know the the growth of logistics yeah i i've noticed so in, in retail precincts like uh in sydney oxford street and, I, and even in albert park in in uh, uh, melbourne a lot of those retail shops have actually not uh, uh been occupied and as a consequence They've kind of been empty for a while, but now I'm starting to see service businesses, you know, like massage parlors and you know, nail um, <coughs> groups and things like that. And as you say, accountants and uh, uh, architects are starting to move into those, those areas. And so I guess that will actually shore up that market uh, over time. Yeah, look, it, it's definitely that is happening. And, and, and I think in, in some of those areas, those inner city areas, you know, it, it, it's quite attractive places to live. So what, the, what, what I'm seeing is that mixed-use developments are starting mm. to occur. So those single-level um, retail uses are now perhaps going three to four levels with apartments above. And that's, that's actually quite a good thing because what that means is if we start to create more density, people living above these retail uses, it, it's creating pedestrian traffic which is then supporting those ground floor retail uses. Yep. So I, I think that's a that's a that's a good a good thing. Okay, mate. Well, um, if people want to know more about what you do, because you've got you know, many hats there, um, where can they go? Yeah, look, um, www.grevelpaps.com.au. That's pretty easy, mate. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks, Peter. Bye bye. Anthony, how are you? Hi, Peter. Very well, thanks. So, what's your theory on why interest rate cuts aren't really exciting um, spenders and boosting the economy? Yeah, I mean, we've seen low interest rates globally now for over 10 years. If you look at the US or the European Central Bank, Bank of Japan, over two decades yeah. now, 
uh, and the Bank of England as well, are only a, a cash rate or the, the equivalent of only three quarters of a percent, the mm. same as ours. Yeah. Um, and that's an economy dealing with Brexit and the uncertainty associated with mm. that. So uh, what a lot of uh, economists have been positing is that as interest rates fall lower and lower, as they start to approach the effective lower bound or zero, uh, zero, zero yeah. rate, uh, you start to see some unusual things going on with the transmission mechanism of monetary policy. Mm. So this is to say that a reduction in the cash rate from 1% to 3 quarters of a percent will have a different impact to say uh, a cash reduction in the cash rate from 5 to 4 and 3 quarters of mm. a percent. Mm. Now interestingly amongst our client base this is the first time that advisors have been reporting to us that uh, clients are calling them up saying, should we be worried? Mm. Is there something that the RBA sees that we don't? Uh, and arguably what we're seeing now is the removal from uh, investment returns of the eighth wonder of the world, according to Einstein, which is compound interest. Mm. So Australians have been very fortunate. Did Einstein actually say that, did he? Uh, they <laughs> yeah, actually, Einstein allegedly said, if you keep on doing the same things, expect a different result. Yeah. It's a definition of insanity. But people yeah. dispute that. But I'll take your word on this well, one. Well, he's actually. a clever guy. He so, was, yeah. uh, And that's a clever thing to say. I mean, compound interest, it, mm. is, it is truly amazing. And, yeah. and you can save for, for future um, it's for future plans on the back of it. Yep. Now, as I mentioned, Australians, very fortunate over the last decade. They could be invested in a balance fund, and all of those balance funds have generated really great performance of, of double digits, you know, mm. over 10% uh, per annum. Yep. But as the cash rate falls, future expected returns from all other asset classes like fixed income or corporate bonds or high yield or, or equities, for mm. example, it also falls. Now, what this means is we're seeing the, the removal of uh, the eighth wonder of the world in compound interest. Mm. So Australians can respond in one of two ways, particularly if they have a savings goal in mind, like saving for a house or saving for their retirement or saving for school fees in yeah. the case or of, trying of to myself. Kill, or, try, or even trying to kill their debt. Exactly, yeah, yeah. so awesome. retire their debt. Mm. Um, what they can do is either they can invest in riskier assets, so they move out of cash and fixed income mm. into potentially higher returning assets but they'll also have to accept the higher volatility or the greater chance mm. of, of a potential <clears throat> loss for in accepting those potential higher returns, or they can save more in, because they can no longer rely upon compounding interest mm. or compounding returns. Mm. And I think what is, we're seeing at the moment, if we look at the economic data for Australia, uh, retail sales actually declined in volume terms for the first time since the GFC, consumer confidence was at a four-year low last month and is bouncing around that, that low level. Um, we've also done an analysis at Fidelity looking at Google search trends and Aussies. You know, if we extract ourselves from the financial world that, that mm. we live in, Peter, mm. and the AFR and the Financial Times, what are Australians actually doing? Well, they're Googling the words Australia recession mm. at a rate not seen since the GFC. Uh, so it's, yeah. on, it's on your website, the mm. analysis. Yeah. But this suggests to me that what Australians are doing is they're prudently paying down debt, if we hear to, from what the bank anecdotes have been telling mm. us from, in terms of their mortgage books, or they're saving more because they can't rely upon those higher returns. Mm. So perversely, we've reached this reversal rate mm -hmm. of monetary policy where RBA interest rate cuts 
are having less and less of an effect on the domestic demand side mm. of this economy. And I know I'm thinking like a, a person who once taught economics at the University of New South Wales, but what you're really saying is that the marginal propensity to consume is falling. That means the marginal propensity to save is rising. And therefore, the multiplier effect, which helps economy grow, it's getting smaller because it's driven by how big the MPC is. Exactly. Mm. So, I mean, as I said, you know, we're, we're last to the party. Other economies have had this low interest rate regime, yeah. quantitative easing regime, <clears throat> now for a decade or more. Yeah. So, if the RBA thinks that uh, these interest rate cuts will have a very stimulatory effect on the Australian economy, yeah. I, I don't share that optimism. Okay. If you were having a, a coffee with the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, what would you recommend he do, he does, or do, uh, to actually get the MPC, the marginal propensity to consume, up? Yeah. Well, it's not a quick win. No. Um, but they, they have to invest in the productive capacity of the Australian economy. They have to undertake supply-side reforms, potentially tax reform, cut red tape for businesses. The RBA is doing everything it can in terms of lowering the cost of capital, so allowing consumers to borrow more, allowing businesses to invest um, and, and get loans. But the, the government has to do its side of, of the equation as well. Now, that said, I don't think that the Australian government will come to the party. Mm. The reason being, if you think about fiscal conservatism, it's defined by a balanced budget, low taxes and small government. And I think that the coalition government has worked very hard to get the budget to surplus um, where we stand today. And they will hold on to that surplus as tight as they can. And as you can see, they're, they're currently resisting mm. uh, a strong demand or strong uh, arguments from the RBA to actually loosen the reins okay. on the fiscal side. Okay, so December 4 is when we see the next economic growth number for the September quarter. If it's disappointing, should he think about bringing tax cuts forward? Absolutely, yeah. I think that, yes, well, I mean, it That's will be true. very popular mm. with, with the voters, mm. uh, of course. Now, the question is, we've already will we, seen Will we spend it or Will we spend it? it? Yeah. I mean, Australians to date, mm. so the Commonwealth Bank came out and said that only 6% of their mortgage uh, and interest, or their principal and interest mortgagees have requested lower mortgage payments after the three interest rate cuts that we've seen. Mm. So overwhelmingly, 94% of the Commonwealth's mortgage book, the, the paying customers, have kept their mortgage payments at the pre-interest rate cut levels. So they're retiring debt, um, which is a prudent thing to do. Yeah, but if you want to juice our economy and ramp up our economy and yeah. get unemployment <clears throat> lower, you really need to support the consumption side. And Aussies are wary yeah because actions speak louder than words, and they're wondering, what's the RBA seeing that we're not? Yeah, and I guess the summary of what you're saying is that it would be responsible for the Treasurer to be spending irresponsible and spend a hell of a lot. Yes, but that's obviously not, not associated with a coalition no. liberal government, no. so I don't think that's what we're going to see. Mm. And Germany, for example, has held steadfast for over a decade to its uh, budget program of Project Black Zero, which mm. is a balanced budget, despite mm. overwhelming need for infrastructure investment in Germany as well. So this is where monetary policy has been the only game in town for yeah. many economies, because it's far easier to cut interest rates than to actually expand fiscally, getting it through uh, the government, parliament, all that type of thing. 
Let's hope we can convince the treasurer to get irresponsible. <laughs> Thanks very much. No That's problem. Anthony Doyle of Fidelity.